I enjoy um, being able to get into God's Word. And, and I think every time uh, you preach, what happens often is the same way you're praying that God will speak to the people you're preaching to, God's Word does a, heart, a work on your own heart. And God certainly has done that in my own heart with this text. But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And before I do, I want to show, uh, introduce who I belong to. Um, this is my wife in the black hat, and I've got two daughters, and then I've got another daughter that went back to the children's church. That's um, my wife, Mandy, then Brooklyn, Juliana, and Macy. And so we are grateful to be here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 19 through 27. And I'm going to pray while you're turning to, to those pages. Lord, I just thank you, God, for your goodness to us. Lord, as I think of the persecuted churches we prayed for, Lord, I was reminded of Acts and how, um, God, you allowed persecution to come to the church in Jerusalem. And because of that, uh, Lord, they fled and the gospel was spread, Lord, and, and, and really a revival throughout the Mediterranean world took place. And um, God, I, as I think of the persecution that's taken place now in these countries, um, I, I know I've heard stories of how, uh, God, the, the, the gospel has spread because of it. And so we, we know that you're in control, and so we just trust you. And I pray, God, you'll remove me out of the way this morning and just uh, use your word to speak to hearts. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to go ahead and read this, um, <clears throat> verse 19, and I'm not sure how you guys usually do it, but um, I, I'm assuming I've got liberty here, so. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to, to others, I myself should be disqualified. This morning, as we jump into this text, we're going to see inside the heart of one of the greatest, um, in, in, at least in my opinion, one of the greatest Christians in all of, uh, of history, one of the most dedicated Christians in all of history, I should say. And as you read through, and we're, we're talking about Paul. Paul's the author here, and he wrote these letters to the, the church at Corinth. And as you read through these letters to the church at Corinth and through the letters that he wrote to 
the church at Galatia and Ephesus um, and Philippi, you find someone who was not concerned with living a comfort, a life of comfort or a life of ease. He wasn't concerned about making a name for himself, but his greatest concern was that he would make a name for Jesus, that he would lift up the name of Jesus. And Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul. He, he, he was an enemy of the church. And when he was on that road to Tarsus, and God reached down and shook him, Paul was completely changed from the inside out. But before this event, he terrorized the church. He was one of the most outspoken enemies of the church. He, he, but even in, in, in being one of the most outspoken enemies of the church, you find that Paul was changed by the gospel. And it's the gospel that motivated Paul until his death. And we're going to talk a lot about the gospel this morning. <clears throat> but twice in the book of Corinthians, the first Corinthians, in chapter 4 and in chapter 11, Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. In the NIV, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And when I look at my own life and I try to compare my life to Paul, man, I find myself falling incredibly short to the amount of dedication that he, he had, the depth of spiritual walk that he had. I'm so far behind, but yet Paul found himself in the same way so far behind where Christ was. But why is someone like Paul able to live his life so fully committed to Christ? And when you look at verse 23... He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I believe that the reason Paul is so dedicated was because he believed with his whole entire being in the power of the gospel. There is not a thread of doubt in him when it came to the gospel. He believed it 110%. You're, you, if, if you ever played sports growing up, your coaches always said, give it 110%, right? He believed with every bit. But in the same aspect, why are we not able to live our life so fully committed to Christ like Paul? And I believe the reason is because we have doubts. We have doubts about the power of the gospel. And when we think about sharing the gospel with someone... Man, what happens is fears come into our, our minds, don't it? We're, we're filled with doubts. We have that fear of rejection. We doubt that it's going to be received. We doubt that it's going to have the same changing power on this person that it had on us. But I want to remind you that Paul's ability to be able to really reach so many people for Christ had nothing to do with his ability. Although he had lots of talents, he was a very intelligent, very educated person, had, had, had skills, but prior to Paul's salvation, remember, he was one of the loudest and greatest enemies of the gospel. He despised the gospel. He despised Jesus. He thought Jesus was a blasphemer of God. But the gospel changed Paul. And so I want to I say, explain, Explain what is the gospel, because honestly, when you, when you talk to Christians today and you ask them what the gospel is, there, it seems like there's less and less that are able to 
to, to give an answer for what is the gospel. So I wrote out my own definition of what is the gospel. And, and really, if you want to look, go to Romans 1, 16 through 17, and 1 Peter 3, 18. You can look at those later. But here, here, here's my attempt, is that we are all sinners. And because of that sin, we are separated from God. And our relationship with God has been broken. So God, in his providence, sent Jesus his, the perfect Son of God and God in the flesh to this world 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died a horrible death on the cross. And in that death, he paid the price that was needed for your sin to be forgiven and paid for so that we can be made righteous in the eyes of God and have our relationship with God restored for all eternity. And in his resurrection, he gave us victory over death. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And you know, when, when, if, if you're a believer here today and you came to Christ, it's because you believed the gospel. There came a point in your life where you said, I'm going to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. And Jesus is the gospel. But sometimes what I find is that we minimize our own salvation testimony. This summer, I got to go with the teens at our church uh, and, and they did a mission serve week, and then at the end of the week, they went to Idaho, and, um, and they camped out there, and then went to triple play in Coeur d'Alene, um, and so that Friday night, I got, I got to go with them, and um, they were sharing their testimony, going around the f- campfire, sharing their testimony, and there's one in particular, he shared this incredible story of redemption, this teenager, um, and really an awesome story of how Man, he came from a, a broken home um, and, and just, I mean, in himself being broken and involved in sin, but Jesus got a hold of him and changed him. And this guy is the, the leader of the teen uh, worship uh, now. <clears throat> and then, um, and it was really a great, incredible story of redemption. But then as some of the others started to share their testimony, they began with, my story's not as exciting, but... And, uh, and then they went on to talk about how, you know what, I grew up in a Christian home and my parents, they taught me about Jesus. And because my parents taught me about Jesus and brought me to church, now I believe in Jesus. You know, and um, what caught my attention is the fact that they said, I don't have an exciting story. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes we gauge the power of the gospel by how much sin we did before we were saved. But that's not the the power of the gospel. The gospel and every life that it changes is a miracle because the truth is, is that before salvation, we were enemies of the gospel just like Paul was. But yet God loved us in spite of our sin, in spite of our condition, God loved us and he sent his son for us. That's the power. That's the miracle of the gospel, that it saved you. And it's not about how much sin you came from. Every person that comes to know Jesus, it's a miracle. And that's exciting. That's something that we can get excited about. But before you came to Jesus, you were an enemy of the gospel. Your life and your heart was controlled by sin and your own selfish ambition and your pride. But when you put your faith in Jesus, he freed you from that. And Paul believed this with all his being, and so should we. 
When you understand the power of the gospel this way, you can be motivated just as Paul was to live your life centered on and to live every part of your life through the lens of the gospel. Verse 23, and this, this verse of the text that we're dealing with is, is really the, the center point on everything. When Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's making the application here that everything he does in life is so that the gospel will affect and change the lives of every person he encounters. In verse 19, Paul understands his freedom in Christ. In verse 19, he says, Though I am free from all, I've made myself servant to all that I might win more of them. If you read through the book of Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians prior to this, chapter 8, it talks a lot about our freedom in Christ. We have so much freedom in Christ that we're not bound by religious or cultural boundaries in our life. And Paul's making the application that he understood that when Christ saved him, he freed him from the religious and the cultural bondage that so many were enslaved to and that we still are enslaved to today. But Paul chooses, in spite of the fact that he has this freedom to serve Christ in the way that he wants to, Paul chooses to make himself a servant, a slave, so that he could see others come to know Christ. That was Paul's driving force there. And this was the, not only the heart and mind of Jesus, but this, or of Paul, but this was also the heart and the mission of Jesus. Mark chapter 10, you can turn over there if you'd like. Um, but here in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 45, you see this heart in Jesus. The disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest and who's going to sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. And Jesus tells them that those that are the greatest are those that are serve. And Jesus ends, he said, For even the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the heart of Jesus, and that's the same heart that Paul had here. And Paul uses his freedom in Christ to choose servitude. In the same way that a soldier willingly enlist in the military. I remember and I graduated my senior year of high school was when 9-11 happened. And I enlisted to go in the Navy. Um, through a number of circumstances, I ended up not going. But a bunch of my friends went in there because they were moved to say, you know what, man, maybe, maybe I might lose my life, but I'm willing to sacrifice the freedom I have in order to save the freedom of others. And that's the mindset of a soldier, right? And that's the same mindset that Paul had. He says, I'm willing to give up all the freedoms I have in this life in order to see others come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul believes in the power of the gospel. He's willing to give up his freedoms that he might win more of them. And in the previous chapters to this, you find that Paul chose to live single because he didn't want to hinder the gospel. He chose not to lift his name up as an apostle higher than Apollos or than Peter, because 
he didn't want to hinder the gospel. He chose being paid as a pastor because he didn't want to hinder the gospel. He would not eat meat offered at the temple of Poseidon, although he was free to do it, and there's nothing that bound him from not doing it. But he said, you know what, if this is going to stop someone from coming to know Christ, then for these Corinthians, I won't do it because I don't want to hinder someone coming to know Jesus. And then you look at verse 20, and Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul became culturally flexible. He was culturally flexible in order to win people to Jesus. When trying to evangelize the Jews, he was going to live like a Jew. So in the presence of the Jews, guess what? Paul wouldn't eat pork. He wanted to see them come to Jesus, and that's something that they couldn't do. And so in order to not offend them, he's not going to invite them over to his, his house and have pork because Jews didn't eat pork. Now, when he was with the Gentiles, he ate pork because bacon's good. Amen. But he would apply the gospel through the lens that a Jew would understand. And the Jews even had 613 extra religious laws that they followed. And they weren't necessary, but they were just part of their devotion to God. And you know what? When Paul was in the presence of Jews, he was willing to follow those rules in order to win them to Jesus. He gave up his freedoms. Verse 21 says, uh, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Excuse me, I lost my... Those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He's talking about Gentiles, about non-Jewish people. And he would adapt the culture of the people in order to reach those people for Christ. And he didn't impose his culture or his ways, but he was culturally flexible. You know, I, I believe that there's been a lot of American missionaries in the past that have erred in this way. They've gone to countries in, in Africa and and they established a church, and when you go to that church, it's a country where no one in that country wears a tie. But then they go, you go to that church on Sunday, and they all wear ties. Where did they get that? That's the American culture, right? That's what it came from, and now we don't wear ties anymore. I'm thankful for that. But if you do, that's okay. Um, but it was, it's the American culture that established that. And then even you can listen to the music, and, 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 and that type of music's not listened to in that country, but they, it's the American music that is listened to and that's used in that church because he's taken his, their culture and establishing it in a different culture. But that's, that's not what Paul says. He says, you know what, I'm going to become culturally flexible in order to share the gospel in order to reach these people. And then you get to verse 22. I believe here, um, when he says the weak, he's referring to socially lower classes. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. If Paul was going to reach a slave in that day, guess what? He would go and, and he'd do the menial task of a slave. 
in order, and he'd work beside him. Maybe even Paul was a tent maker. And I imagine as he worked beside people and he made tents, he shared the gospel with them. And there's people that came to know Jesus because he was sitting there working shoulder to shoulder with them. This is also the heart of Jesus. Um, Jesus was the same way. You can go and see how Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Now, if you understand that the culture in that day, the lowest servant in a household was the one who would wash the feet because they, most of them traveled in sandals and there was, it was dusty and it was hot. So they come in at the end of the day and their feet would be nasty. I remember preaching on that when I was a youth pastor years ago and I picked the, the grossest teenager that I had and I, I got him up there and I washed his feet as an illustration and it was gross. His feet stunk. But Jesus did this to his disciples. He washed the feet of his disciples because he says, you know what? Let me teach you what the Son of Man is about. He's about serving. He said, I came to serve and to be a ransom for many. Paul had the same heart that Jesus had. And you get to verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This was the heart of Paul, and it really should be the heart of every believer, because we've been cha- saved, and we've been changed in the same way that Paul was. And we have everything that Paul had in order to win people to Jesus. Verse 23, it says, share with them in its blessings. Its, I-T-S, is referring to the gospel. So what is the blessing of the gospel? You know, watching that video this morning, um, I saw the, and talking about Egypt there. You know, when we think of Egypt, what do we think of? When we think of ancient Egypt, what is it that we think of? The, the pyramids, right? Yeah. We think of the pyramids. And um, it's an incredible thing that, to think that in that day and age, they were able to build those. They didn't have the modern industry and technology that we have today, but yet the preciseness that they have, that they're able to build, build these incredible pyramids. But you know, those pyramids are essentially giant burial tombs. And what they are is that everything a pharaoh had in, in his life, all, all, the, all the comforts of life and, and the necessities of life, and, and even his servants would be killed and buried with them. But they would all be, all those things would be buried with them so that in the afterlife, this Pharaoh would have all the things that he needed. But you know, we know that's not true, right? Yesterday we went to the, my wife and I went to the funeral of a dear sweet lady. She was 97 years old, faithful to the Lord. Um, and we walked across her casket and looked at her body. And it was just her body. There was, she wasn't there. That was just a shell, because she was celebrating with, 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 with Jesus and with her family in heaven. We can't, don't get to take those things with us. The only thing that I believe that we're able to take with us, in a sense, are the, really the souls of other people. And I think this is what Paul's referring to when he says to share with them in its blessings, the blessings of the gospel. Verse 24, 
He asks a rhetorical question. He says, do you not know? And he's going to explain his devotion to seeing people come to know Jesus. Paul's going to, he's actually going to do with the Corinthians exactly what he challenged them to do with the Jews and the Gentiles and the other verses. To the Corinthian, Paul is going to become a Corinthian. And he's really appealing to the culture and the lens of the Corinthians here. And he's doing this so that they could relate to this truth and make them understand the importance of the gospel and how it should affect them as believers. Paul is appealing to their understanding of the Olympic and the Isthmian Games. The Olympic Games, we're all familiar with that, but those started in ancient Greece about 776 B.C. And it it was a very religious ceremony. It was not just about physical competition. It wasn't just about who could be the best, but it was done in honor and to give recognition to the pagan gods of the Greeks. And this motivated these Greek athletes to train intensely in every area of their life. And in Corinth, they had the Isthmian Games. Just as the the Olympic Games are held every four years, the Isthmian Games were held every two years. And so you've got, if, if you could picture a map up here, you've got the mainland of Greece, and then you've got this isthmus that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula here. And this isthmus is right where Corinth is. They're right on that narrow piece of land. And every two years, they'd have the Isthmian Games. And it was, it was a very important thing. The only thing bigger was, was the Olympics. And Paul's uh, appealing to their understanding of this. <clears throat> and so when you even look at the Olympics today, they're still an important part of our world, right? We've got the Olympics every four years. Earlier in the summer, they tried to make up for the Olympics that were missed in 2020. <clears throat> but these games were so important to them that even in times of war, a temporary truce was made between warring city-states. In 412 BC, Athens, which is just to the north, was at war at Corinth. And the Isthmian Games were coming up, and they had a temporary truce that was made between them in order for the Athenian athletes to be able to travel to Corinth and compete in the games. They stopped battle because the Isthmian Games were coming. If only we could stop wars that way today. But verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul's making the point that the life that we live for the gospel and because of the gospel should be lived, it should be lived with the same motivation and desire that an Olympian athlete lives his life for the competition. A runner in an Olympic race is not doing the race just for the sake of running, right? He's not doing a leisurely jog in the Olympics. They want to win the gold. And I don't know about you, I'm a very, I've always been a very competitive person, and I always want to win. And then when I win, I feel bad. But then when I lose, I get mad. But they're competitive. They want to win. That's why they're running the race, to get, a, to get the gold medal. 
the Jamaican runner, many of you I'm sure have heard of him, uh, Usain Bolt. He's considered the fastest runner in the world. Uh, he, he, in 2009, he set the world record for the 100-meter sprint at 9.58 seconds. That's how long I run the 10-meter. After retiring in 2015, he had collected 33 gold medals and seven silver medals. But you know, he did not get there just because he enjoys running, although I'm sure he enjoys running. But he became the fastest runner in the world because he had the goal to be the fastest and to be the best. And he ran every race because he was trying to win. And Paul lived his life for the gospel this way. He, he, he lived his, his life because he wanted to run in such a way as if he was going to get the prize. And when I say the gospel, I mean his desire, as we've read, was that he could share the gospel and he could see people come to know Jesus and, and to share in its blessing. That was Paul's desire. And just as Paul did, so should we. We should run in such a way as to get the prize. But don't misinterpret this. Um, you know, we're not in a competition against one another. <clears throat> and this has nothing to do with a prize that you'll get. Because the prize for Paul is to see people come to Christ. This has to do with how we live our lives and how we run our lives. Live your life for the gospel as if somebody's eternity depended on it. Don't hinder someone from coming to Christ. And in verse 25, it says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. <clears throat> the NIV says, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. You all heard of Michael Phelps, I'm sure. But Michael Phelps is known as the greatest Olympian in all of history. And, you know, he did not get there by accident, but he lived a life that prepared him to be that. And in order to keep up with the amount of training he did, he had to eat 10,000 calories of food a day. Now, if you don't know, that's a lot of food. <clears throat> that's the equivalent of what five grown men are supposed to eat in a day. Sometimes we eat more than that, right? <laughs> but here's, here's, here's what Michael Phelps usually ate in a day. And for some of you, you're going to get hungry right now and hope that I end soon. And for some of you, you're going to get grossed out. But here's what he ate. For breakfast, Michael Phelps ate three fried egg sandwiches with everything on it three chocolate chip pancakes, a five-egg omelet, three pieces of French toast, and a bowl of grits. That's breakfast. And then for lunch, half a kilogram of pasta, two ham and cheese sandwiches, and two energy drinks. And then for dinner, a pound of pasta with carbonara sauce, a large pizza, one by himself, and an energy drink. Man, if we ate this way, we'd be in the hospital tomorrow having our stomachs pumped. There's, there's no way that we could eat this way. But the reason that he could and the reason he needed to eat this way was because of the amount of physical training that he did. In order to train the way that he did, it requires a large amount of carbohydrates to fuel his body. And he would train for swimming twice a day 
and he swam up to 50 miles a week. He would lift weights at least three times a week. He physically trained every day from five to six hours for six days a week. And this kind of physical exertion also requires sleep and recovery. And he would sleep a minimum of eight hours a night, and he'd take a two-hour nap in the afternoon between workouts. That sounds nice. I think we can all handle that. But all he could do, when asked in an interview about his life and training, all, he said all he could do is eat, sleep, and swim. He had no time for anything else. He didn't have time for fun. He didn't have time for friends. He didn't have time for a girlfriend or a wife or any family. He had time for nothing else but to eat, swim, and sleep. That's all he could do. But the reason that he could do it is because he was motivated to be the best swimmer in the world. And today, because of that amount of training, he's recognized as the greatest Olympian of all time. And Paul here is appealing to the Corinthians' love and understanding of the games. And he's comparing it to their struggle to give up some of their individual rights for the sake of the gospel. Because he doesn't want them to hinder the gospel, but he wants them to be motivated by the gospel. In verse 25, it goes on. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In the Olympic Games at this time, when uh, uh, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians here, they didn't get a gold medal like we do today. What they got was a crown made of olive branches. In the Isthmian Games, they made them out of pine branches with celery. And this crown that they got represented a lot of hard work, a lot of determination. But by the time an Olympian returned home to his city-state, because it would be days or, or weeks, depending on how far they had to travel. Remember, they're going by foot or maybe horse that crown that represented all of their hard work and their determination would have been withered. They didn't go put it on the shelf and show it to mom and dad so that they could be proud of them. That crown was withered, right? But our reward, our victor's crown is an imperishable one. You know, Scripture talks a lot about rewards uh, that we're going to receive for the life that we lived as a believer. But I really don't think Paul here is talking about those rewards. And, and um, if I'm wrong, Pastor Stephen can correct me later. But Paul did not live his life for those rewards. But he's really talking about that person you lived out the gospel in front of. That person that Maybe you planted the seed of the gospel, or maybe somebody else planted the seed of the gospel, and you came along and you watered it. Or maybe you got to actually take part in harvesting this, in, in this person coming to know Jesus. But you know what? You invested in this person. And guess what? Because you took time, and because you sacrificed, because you gave up your freedoms, one day you're going to be able to see that person in eternity. Man, this life here is just a temporary life. 
And Paul is talking about giving up our freedoms so that we can see these people come to Christ. And you know what? That is the reward. What, and, and, and there's nothing that has any greater value in this world than to know that you had a part in that. That's incredible. That's an imperishable crown. In verse 26, he goes on and he says, so I do not, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Boxing was another major competition of the Greek games, and it was really a violent sport uh, that was sometimes fought to the death. It's much closer to MMA today than what we know of boxing. Um, how many like MMA? No? Guess I'm the only one. Okay. But this, Paul's point here is whether, um, whether his illustration is running or it's boxing, his point here is that those that compete in the games, they compete for a purpose. And the purpose is to win this victor's crown. And so our purpose ought to also be to gain the victor's crown, the, to, the, the crown of being able to see people come to know Jesus as their Savior. In verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You think, how could Paul be disqualified for the prize? Because I want to make it clear, he's not talking about losing his salvation. When you put your faith in Jesus, I was 13 years old when I put my faith in Jesus, and I became a follower of Christ. And you know what? The day that I did, when I put my faith in Jesus, the Bible says that my salvation was, was sealed until the day of redemption, and no one can take that away. You can't lose your salvation. John 10, verses 27 through 30, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given to them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So he's not talking about losing his salvation. But remember, the prize here is to see someone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to be able to spend eternity with that person. Paul didn't want to disqualify himself from sharing in this prize. Verse 23, that I may share with them in its blessings. He didn't want to miss an opportunity to plant the seed of the gospel or to water the seed of the gospel or to harvest in the gospel. Paul's concern that we see all through his letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, to the Philippians, is that he did not want to hinder someone from coming to know Jesus. And so because of that, <clears throat> about to get into a touchy subject. So because of that, <clears throat> he's willing to give up his Christian liberties, his Christian freedoms, so that he would not hinder someone from coming to Jesus. What does that look like? Well, for Paul, if you read back in chapter 8, for in, in Corinth, they, they, uh, the, there was the temple of Poseidon, that, and, and many of these Corinthians um, that had come to know Jesus as their Savior before had worshipped at the temple of Poseidon. And, and so they would, they would have meat that was 
burnt in an offering. And then they would take that meat and they'd go sell it in the marketplace. And for Paul, he said, you know what? If this is going to offend somebody or stop somebody from coming to Christ, then I won't eat this meat that was offered at the temple of Poseidon. I'll go further on down the marketplace and I'll buy this other meat. And then we can sit down over a meal and, sh- and I'll share the gospel with you. That's how he gave it up. And maybe you say, oh, you have a problem if I have a drink of alcohol? I don't have to drink alcohol. Let's go further on down the road and let's get some coffee. Oh, it offends you for me to wear a mask? I told you I was going to get into a touchy subject. (laughs) Well, I can put on a mask for you. There's nothing wrong with these things, right? We have these freedoms in Christ, but Paul's challenge to us is, are you willing to say no to some of your rights, to some of your freedoms, to some of your desires, if it means that someone's going to put their faith in Jesus Christ? Is that the motivation of your heart? Because that is the motivation of Paul's heart, and that's the motivation of Jesus. And the truth is, is that we're always going to offend someone at some point. I'm sure I offended someone today, and I'm sorry if I did, but if I didn't offend you, I would have offended someone else, right? That's, that's the truth of it. <clears throat> you can never please everyone, but this is dealing with the unbelievers that God has placed in our life and along our path. <clears throat> I heard another pastor recently say, Keep your ministry adaptable and your doctrine sharp. We're not talking about compromising truth or doctrine. We're we're talking about adapting our own personal rights, our wants, so that an unbeliever that you're intentionally in a relationship with and you're working towards seeing them become a believer, a follower of Christ, that they won't be able to use you as an excuse to reject the gospel. You say, well, what if I don't know anyone that is an unbeliever? Man, find one. You need to find one. You know, we're, we are, and it's, Pastor Stephen is not the only one called to share the gospel, as of every believer is called to share the gospel. When Paul says he disqualified, by preaching the gospel, he's not talking about standing in a pulpit. He's talking about sharing the gospel with those around him. We are all called to share the gospel, you know, and God's convicted me in this last year about this, but um, working at a church, man, I'm, I'm around believers all the time, and it's actually hard to be around unbelievers, and I have to be intentional about it. I have to in, intentionally go and find people that are not believers and inject myself into their life. Because if I don't, then I might as well work in a monastery, right? We're not meant to be hidden away from the world, but we're supposed to be salt and light in this world, sharing the gospel of Jesus. And so can I just challenge you? Don't, don't try to win all of Ellensburg. You know, Paul wasn't trying to win all of Corinth. He was just trying to win those that God placed in his life. But win, try to win someone to Jesus. Be intentional about a relationship. 
How can you sacrifice your wants, your desires, give up your freedoms to see them come to Christ? Uh, my wife and I have a family in particular that God's laid in our hearts. Um, my daughter is friends um, with this, their daughter at school. Um, and their daughter came to our sports campus last year, and she trusted Christ. And, and so we, we have a, a friendship built with, with her parents, and we pray for them. We, we, we want to see them come to Christ. We've got another family um, that, that been, I've been friends with him ever since I was um, a, a teenager. And we want to see them come to trust Christ. Those are people God's injected into our lives, or that he's injected us into their lives. And those are the ones that we're trying to be intentional. So I, I don't know who it is for you, but maybe it's a coworker for you. Maybe it's someone at the gym. Maybe it's your next door neighbor, or maybe it's a family member. Man, family's probably the hardest when it comes to sharing the gospel. I don't know if you have unbelievers in your family. I do, and I find it so hard to share the gospel with them but it should be someone in your life. Because you see here, Paul's biggest obstacles in winning someone to Christ, it was not the oppression of the Roman government, although that was very real. And it wasn't the attacks of the Jewish community, although that happened. He would get kicked out of a town and stoned. He got imprisoned and sent to Rome. Those weren't his biggest obstacles. But his biggest obstacles in sharing the gospel was clearing the obstacles of his own personal freedoms in Christ and being willing to be a servant in order to win someone to Christ. And our biggest obstacles is also to set aside our own personal freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Our obstacles aren't the oppression of the government. It's setting aside our own personal freedoms to share the gospel. So, and it's so that we can see, we can share in seeing a person come into a relationship with God that's going to last for eternity. And that, there's nothing more valuable than that. So what are you willing to give up so that you can share in the blessing of the gospel? Because you see, when we're changed by the gospel, that same gospel motivates us to live to see others changed by the gospel. If you believe, man, the gospel changed my life and it set me on a path towards eternity with heaven, man, don't you want that for everybody else? That should motivate us. When you understand the power of the gospel this way, you can be motivated just as Paul was to live your life centered on and to, and, and to live every part of your life through the lens of the gospel. That's what we're called to today. And so I don't know where you are, um, but like I told you at the beginning, this, man, this did a work in my heart. Because the truth is that, man, I'm so far behind. And I wrestle and I struggle with my own personal freedoms all the time. I don't want to give that up, and I don't want to do that. But you know what? If someone's going to come to Christ for it, man, it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I'm grateful. Man, I'm grateful that you saved me. Um, 
God, I'm grateful that you love me in spite of me, in spite of my sin, God. You gave your love toward us, and that while I was a sinner, you died for me. God, I thank you for that, Lord. And uh, God, we're so undeserving of that, but yet you still loved us. And as I look around, Lord, I see myself failing all the time when it comes to sharing the gospel and trying to reach people. But God, I pray that on a daily basis, the gospel would motivate us to see that same changing power take place in the lives of others. Lord, we trust you. We love you. I just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.